the choice to spread love in a world full of pain. The generation willing to be a light in darkness. The selfless desire to serve humanity. The purpose fueled with passion to make a difference. This is Madcasters, the ultimate guide you need to impact the world. What's going on, everyone? This is your host, Brian St. Louis, and I'm here to connect you to impact leaders across the globe who strive to make a difference in their communities and the world. As you listen to these gripping stories and endeavors from inspirational people and organizations, you will gain the confidence to implement strategies to make a difference not only in your personal life, but to impact humanity around you. Please subscribe to Madcasters on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Instagram. Support through Patreon. Together, let's make a difference and change the world. Everyone, this is your host Brian St. Louis, and we are here with another episode of Madcasters, where we highlight people and individuals and organizations who are actively making a difference in the world. With us today, we have Mark Hennick, and we're very happy to have you with us today. Mark, thank you for coming on to Madcasters podcast. Brian, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Why don't we get into this? Uh, your story seems very uh, enlightening. It seems very as I would say, you know, as you're reading it it, it, it takes you into this place where you really want to understand the depth of it. And so why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are uh, and what got you to even writing this book that you have yourself? Sure. Yeah. So-called Normal, a memoir of family depression and resilience. I just released it a couple of months ago. And awesome. really, though, it's been a, a lifetime in the making, really, quite literally. Yeah. Um, you know, now I'm a, a mental health advocate and activist. Uh, I openly speak about uh, my own suicide attempts as a teenager. Mm. Uh, but really, with the book, I wanted to go back to the very beginning and and talk about how it all started, what informed it. You know, when I did my uh, TEDx talk in 2013, uh, so many people came to me and said, well, that's, that's great that you were able to recover. It must not have been that bad, <laughs> you know? Wow, and I think they really the, said that the, a number of people said that, you know, that, wow. that, uh, and yes, there are people who, there are a lot of people, way too many people who struggle so, uh, so profoundly that they never get out of that place. Mm -hmm. And I was able to, that doesn't mean that my struggle was any less. It means right. that whether it was through luck or chance, you know, whatever, I don't know, I got out. Mm -hmm. uh, and really, the book is my effort to try to figure that out for myself to try to figure out how, why was I the lucky one that was able to get through those struggles. Mm. So what exactly did you have to go through with those struggles uh, for you to get through this, this period of time in your life, especially in those teenage years, because we know a lot of teenagers, especially right now, with COVID being such a such an issue throughout the world, mm -hmm. mental health crises have also grown exponentially. And so, you know, what what are you, what was your story like, and what can we 
tell kids today, teens today, or anyone today who's dealing with mental health struggles? Yeah, you know, for me, I, people first found out that I was suicidal when I was only 12 years old. Uh, wow. And they found out because I was drawing little pictures of how I would kill myself in the margins uh, of a test, a social studies test that I was writing at wow. school. Uh, I now know, again, thanks to have written the book, because I didn't know this before, uh, that I was really struggling. And I think it was obvious to me anyway, for years, even before that. Uh, mm. So I was struggling from from early childhood, I think. Uh, and it started in many ways, you know, growing up in a, in a broken family where mm. my father left when I was very young. My mother had to work uh, full time overtime hours. Often she wasn't around a whole lot just because she was just trying to put food on the table. Mm. Um, and then when we moved in uh, to a new home uh, with my stepfather and a blended family, uh, it it became this culture of, of to toxic masculinity that really it wasn't okay to talk about how I was feeling because I was right. supposed to be a, a man. I was supposed to man up, even though I was a little boy. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think it was a combination of factors really that led up to that very first expression of being suicidal when I was 12, uh, that I didn't know how to talk about my emotions. I didn't have mm. skills for how to deal with them. I felt isolated and alone. Um, I thought I was trapped and that I would never get out of that place. And, you know, that, that, um, feeling around me uh, the, of isolation and of fear, it gradually sunk into me, I think, into my mind. And, mm. and that's what kept me tra trapped there in many ways. So, you know, what uh, started when I was 12, at least overtly anyway, ended up being the next couple of years of my life throughout my teenage years uh, of increasingly dangerous suicide attempts, uh, a variety of diagnoses of mental illness, ultimately uh, major depressive disorder and social anxiety disorder yeah. uh, in and out of hospital more than half a dozen times. I was on cocktails of medications uh, until eventually, you know, I, I tell the story in my Ted talk as well. I thought I just had enough. I thought that I was never going to get out of this, this place literally, but also this place in my mind and in my life. And that's when I uh, enacted a plan to uh, climb up over the railing of a bridge. And I was finally going to end my life. Uh, and if it wasn't for a complete stranger who stopped and eventually who actually reached out and physically pulled me off the edge of that bridge, mm. I would never have been able to build the life uh, of talking about and advocating for change uh, to those experiences that, I, that I've had. So I really owe everything to that stranger that night who saved me. You, you hear those stories on, you know, on YouTube or maybe you see it on Facebook, but I'm actually being able to talk to someone who's been through that now. And, you know, so many questions come into my mind. First of all, how old were you when you were at that uh, place where you were almost about to jump over? I was 15 by that point. You're 15. Yeah. Wow. And it was and, you know, still just a kid, really, like just yeah, a teenager. Yeah, what still, do I know? Yeah. Right? But feeling like I had tried everything, really honestly feeling uh -huh. like there was nothing left that uh, my life would never turn into anything else because I had such a limited view of my life. I had such limited mm -hmm. experience of my life. I had no way of knowing of everything that I would become. Do you think that having the right and this is this is kind of moving into a different space of this conversation, but do you believe that having like the right mentor, the right uh, person who can guide you through in life, do you do you think you would have been in that same place uh, as you were at a 15 years old? Yeah, you know, I was I was fortunate to have had uh, a couple of people along the way who really stood out for me as mm. um, protectors in some way, or at least people who were trying to help. 
Uh, yeah. And I and I think this is true for a lot of people. You know, not everybody in somebody's life is is out to get them and is really bad. Even though you feel that way when you're really right. depressed, that everybody right. wants what's worst for you. Um, but going back over my story, I realized that there actually were a few people who filled that kind of mentoring type role for mm. me or that protector role. And one of them was um, my junior high school guidance counselor. He was the first one to notice, actually, or one mm. of the first people to notice that I was suicidal. Uh, and consistently throughout my uh, journey. He was the one that tried to help. But then again, looking back over my story too, his hands were tied as well. He didn't really, you know, he had the, he had the intent to help me. He wanted to help me, but how was he supposed to help a kid like me? Right. All he could do was send me to the hospital because there was nothing else. There was nothing else that he could do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think it was good that I had those people along the way, but I wish that those people had an infrastructure uh, that they could have relied on to help them. That's real. So they had the heart of the matter to help you, but they didn't have the tools. Yeah. They didn't have the, the the know-how in order for you to get the exact help that you needed. Yeah. So so what happened now, this stranger, and, and crazily enough, you, you ended up meeting this person later on, right? So yeah. how yeah. how did that interaction happen between you two uh, years later after you uh, saw your hero save your life? Yeah, you know, so we were on the bridge together that night and um, the cops had arrived. They had set up uh, sawhorse barricades on either side of the bridge. It's, it was a small town, so crowds yeah. came out uh, to watch because yeah. there's not much that happens in small towns. And I remember there's this other stranger, this different guy on the sidelines with his friends, and he was laughing and uh, he shouted out for me to jump and he called me a coward. And I remember in that moment that that I felt like I, I let go of the railing and I started to fall. And that's when the stranger who was behind me uh, and all I could see was that he was wearing a light brown jacket. That's all that I ever remembered him as uh, for most of the time after he's he then wrapped his arm around me and he and he pulled me off the bridge. Um, I didn't know at the time that that was going to be the last time I ever tried to kill myself. Uh, because mm. I think recovery happens so slowly that you don't realize how far you've come until you actually look back and, and see it for yourself. Right. So for me, it wasn't until more than a dozen years later, I had built this life of talking openly about my experiences, doing media in particular. That's how I I discovered that that was my purpose, I think, in life was to tell mm. stories and to uh, communicate in a, in a big way about uh, vulnerability and about recovery. Uh, and then uh, after I had done the TED talk, I had this urge inside me to find this stranger because for this dozen years, I had no idea who this guy was. Mm. And I had tried, you know, some of the, the um, I guess, traditional ways of finding him. I, I pulled my medical records and the police records, and uh, I, I asked around through the usual channels and I wasn't getting anywhere with it. And then I guess I just had this insight. I'd been talking to some journalist friends of mine and I, I realized, well, why don't I just do what I've been doing all my life uh, and ask the public uh, to help yeah. me, you know, yeah. process this stuff in public. Uh, so I went on uh, what was then Canada's most watched morning news program, Canada AM. Uh, I told this story, I asked for the public's help uh, in finding the stranger who saved my life. And I posted on my Facebook and, and Twitter pages as well. And sure enough, within like an hour, I start getting flooded with messages from people wow. all over the world, actually, because this story goes viral wow. all over the world. Uh, and then somebody who who says he's his, he was his roommate at the time and he knew who I was talking about. Another guy said he was his brother-in-law uh, and that they'd, they'd been sharing the story in the family. 
And it turned out actually that the stranger in the light brown jacket had uh, seen my TED talk only about a week or so before I went on national television to look for him. And he'd written (laughs) me a letter already in case someday he ever found me. So that's how we reconnected. They sent me the letter. And that's when I learned he introduced himself. Finally, Uh, he said his name was Mike uh, and that he'd been working in mental health advocacy ever since. Wow. So so from that point on, you too decided to move on into mental health advocacy. That's amazing. Well, and actually, he's been working in uh, mentoring and and uh, crisis intervention with mm. young boys primarily uh, ever since then, too. So, you know, he said That's Mike great. said in his letter that um, he mentioned the, the brief amount of time that we were together because we weren't together very long on that on that bridge that mm-hmm. night. But mm-hmm. how we both impacted each other in such a profound way from that moment forward. You know, when I heard your when it, well, like I'm hearing your story, you said how there is this one person who's trying to save your life. And you have another who's calling you a coward mm-hmm. and trying to make same for you to chump. It was just like, I saw this battle of good and evil just happen mm-hmm. right there between your, your life. And, you know, goodness won, man. And, and yeah. it continues to win because you're moving forward in such a way in which you're helping people throughout this, uh, this, moment of your life you know going through such tragic moments going through such a uh, a climax of a of a, an experience and then now uh, what it's been the past 12 years now you're just continuously looking to impact lives I, i'm just i don't know if i got a little there was like a little tear coming on my honestly uh, <laughs> well for this. me you know for me i i think i i talk and i advocate and i do this work because I need to, yeah. you know, it, it's, 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 I do it to, to change the system and to help others. And yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want anybody to feel the way that I felt, or at least I want to do what I can to um, right. help them out of that place. But at the end of the day too, I, I do this for myself in a lot of ways because mm. my recovery was so um, tied up with my advocacy, right? It, mm. it came with owning my story and, uh, and doing something with my experiences. Yeah. Like what, What's the point of of your trauma if you can't do something with it? I guess that's <laughs> that's kind of the mindset that I took on, and yeah. and I guess that's that's what saved me in a lot of ways. Do you still struggle with like thoughts of depression or or even possibly thoughts of suicide? Is that still something that goes on? But now you're just able to uh, deal with it in such a more healthy and and better way. Yeah, you know that that last attempt was in two thousand and three um so mm. i guess going you know 18 years now going oh, wow. on 20 years okay. uh and for most of that time the answer to that question was yes uh, mm. and especially you know early on out of it like i say for 12 years of that journey i didn't even know that i was recovering i didn't even realize mm. that i'd stopped trying to kill myself like you'd mm. think that's something you would you would realize um yeah. and i didn't because i was i was relapsing pretty regularly you know twice Mm. a year, at least at first. And then it kind of reduced down to once a year, usually in the spring that I would relapse. I later realized that's when I had experienced a lot of my trauma, you know, was in March, April kind of. So I think it was something just with the, maybe the changing season or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it started to come further and further out. You know, there, there were lots of struggles along the way, but now I, you know, some people identify as having depression uh, for their whole life. And they, and mm-hmm. they just say, even if they don't experience it currently, that they'll just always have it. 
And I've actually relatively recently shifted in my view of that is that if I no longer meet any of the clinical symptoms anymore, Mm -hmm. then I don't think I have depression anymore, which is still weird for me to say, because I had it for most of my life, Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't anymore. And, and I think, you know, there were a lot of things that, that played into that certainly in terms of my recovery, but at the end of the day, it's because I found something to do with my experience that Mm -hmm. it wasn't happening. My life wasn't happening to me anymore. It was happening for me all of a sudden. I think agency, having that agency is really what saved my life. I like that life is not happening to me. It's happening for me. And you're moving in that. Yeah. I really like the way you, you formulated that sentence. That's great. So, you know, and, and I think it's, I think you get so used to being, um, told what your story is and you get used to being controlled after a while, especially when you're vulnerable, right? Everybody, mm-hmm. I felt like I had seen dozens of doctors and, and psychologists and psychiatrists and social workers, all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And I felt like everybody was just treating me like a broken down car on the side of the road. Like my brain was broken and they had to fix me. They had to find the right chemicals or the right, you know, connections and just fix that. And then I'd be happy. Mm. And while I was waiting for other people to do that for me, I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Wow. Uh, so I thought it was my fault, you know, and, and this is still how the system works. Mm-hmm. I think really we need to um, that that might still be part of uh, somebody's recovery. Don't get me wrong. I eventually yeah, yeah, found a medication that helped me. Um, but I think being empowered to really take charge of my own recovery mm-hmm. is really what what really helped. My your illness isn't your fault, uh, but your recovery to an extent is your responsibility. 100%. And there are things you need to do to help yourself recover. One hundred percent. I agree with that. One hundred percent with the whole concept of of the fact that we need to also take in charge of the fact that we need our own recovery. Uh, sometimes we we fall into our victim mindset where it's uh, this is what's going on in my life and I can't help myself in any way, shape, or form. And I, and I do think that people do need to understand that sometimes you have to take that first step forward um, yeah. to wanting ha- to have that type of recovery. What? Well, not even the first step. You got to take all the steps. All the steps. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> other other people might, uh, uh, other people can and should support yeah. that, and you know, scaffold it and and build you up. Sure. But at the end of the day, right. you have yeah. to do the work. That's one hundred percent. What what was it like? Um, and we're gonna get into your book here very soon. But what was it like um, with your family going through all of this recovery, ha- having you know, having gone through that type of experience, a traumatic experience of, of taking, wanted to take your life in that dramatic of a way to now actually getting that type of recovery, uh, seeing your life transforming mm-hmm. before their eyes. What, what was it like with your family around you seeing this transformation? Yeah. You know, my, a change in environment, I think was one of the, there were many factors that really um, jump started my recovery, but it was change, a change in environment that I think really made it stick. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my early experiences uh, in high school was going away just for a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. uh, for a work study program in Quebec. It was an opportunity that came up through school. I I don't know why they accepted me, but they brought me away. I lived with a different family for six weeks and I just worked and learned, learned the language. And I later realized how impactful that was for my mental health, because that's not, I didn't intend to go there to help my mental health, uh, but just seeing a world outside of my current world is, Mm. you know, it showed me that there was something else out there. And I think it kindled in me an ambition 
so then I eventually I went off uh, to college and that's that's when I really started to learn more about myself. But as I reflected back and I would go back to visit, I realized, you know, nothing changes if nothing changes, that if everything in the same old place stays the same old way, then everybody expects things to say the same. Mm. So I think in some ways, and I think many people experience this, you visit people from your past and they think that you're still the person that they knew 20 years ago, right? So it's no wonder that you would stay stuck if you never changed anything because everybody expects you to always be the same. Yeah. Um, But then there were people along the way, I think, who were able to observe the growth and the change Mm. over time and that were willing to grow with me. Uh, And I think those are the people that have really been, you know, uh, that we've forged a lifelong connection because they've been with you on the journey along the way. So, you know, I I think it, it always depends. And, and, I hear young people all the time who who are so um, resistant to letting people come in and out of their lives when really I think everybody comes in and out of your life depending on what you need at that time and what they need at that time and uh, the version of you uh, that they're getting to know at that time. So, you know, I I think that, that everybody needs to grow and change and sometimes that means moving on from some people. Uh, I, I definitely take that point um, that they're because I've worked a lot with the youth sector as well. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of them sometimes when I, when I heard you make the statement of uh, they don't like to see or have people come in and out of their lives is because um, sometimes they they let people in and that person who said that they'd be there for them yeah. uh, ends up, you know, either leaving for a legitimate reason right sometimes sure. and it still hurts them in that sense but uh, or they they didn't come through for them when they said that they would and 100%. And, yeah. and you know especially if you don't have that type of consistency in the home and it's like okay i'm looking for a certain a consistency maybe in our school or in this program whatever the case may be and then now even these people are saying uh or they're not there for me too so it, it could definitely yeah. pull a pull a pull uh or a hardship for the, for the youth and that, and yeah. that type. But I, guess but that, I think that, that all of us, every adult carries their, their childhood attachments 100%. and their attachment pattern into that. Right. 100%. I mean, you show me a perfectionist and I'm going to show you somebody who felt like they had to be scrappy as a young kid because they didn't have other people helping them. Exactly. Like the, everybody's got <laughs> issues. Right. And I think that when we actually grapple with that, that's, yeah. that's when it gets exciting. Right. Yeah. And, and it's uncertain and it's hard, but this is, I think really the key to, Uh, our mental health as adults is like, you don't want to spend all your time processing your childhood. Now that eventually you got to move on, Um, but you also have to be able to appreciate what you bring to the table that you are now in this moment, everything that you've ever experienced. That's true. Uh, Like I felt that as soon as you said that, because for me, even of just a couple of months ago, I was processing some of the ways that I am today because of my childhood and, and what that looked like, you know, I'm writing down, I was journaling, I was looking at just, certain aspects of my childhood to understand me today. And so I think it's like you said, we we don't have to be stuck in our childhood and and just focus so much as to what happened, but it is important for us to be able to acknowledge these things in order for us to be able to move forward. Well, that was one of the cool things I think about writing my book as well, is that before I went into it, especially that first draft that was just so raw and just me mm -hmm. pouring myself out on the page, 
Um, before I did that, I didn't fully appreciate how much of my past was always just kind of bubbling right beneath the surface, mm. right? It was just all the old traumas and all the old vendettas and hatreds and angers and hurts. Everything was just below the skin. Yeah. And then when I actually went back into it and dealt with it, just faced it and worked it through and gave it a narrative and and tried to understand it from different angles and really worked on it. Um, now I find it's, uh, it's, it's like I pulled it all out, worked on it, put it back inside, and now I don't need it anymore. It's like now mm. I was able to put all my past stuff just into the bottom drawer and I can access it if I need it, but it's not begging to come out anymore, uh, which is such a liberating way to live now, to not always be shackled to your past. And I, I wasn't I like expecting that. that change. I like that. So what was the, I guess, the the motivating factor behind writing the so-called normal in this sense was it for me uh, yeah it, it, it came from it? a place of of necessity for me i mean i needed mm. to um figure my own story out like mm. I, I did the ted talk and um i i felt like in some ways people expected that 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 was the whole story just one kind of dramatic 16 minute uh, story about me being suicidal when really, you know, none of the early stuff was in it that, that really brought me to that point on that bridge that night. Mm. None of the later stuff was in it of, well, what are you going to do now with all that experience? Mm. So that, that was it for me. I needed to give my story some coherence uh, and it was such a personal project. I think anybody who's read the book can tell how personal it was. It was me trying to figure out my life uh, and bringing the reader along for the ride. Mm. Um, so, so for me, it was trying to make sense, I think of my own story. So, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you had to write this book just for yourself and there was no other sales that were in it, would you be happy no matter what, just because of the fact that you were able to actually get this done for you? Uh, probably not. <laughs> because, <laughs> to be perfectly frank with you, um, if like it was that. just me, if it was just me writing in my journal, I probably yeah. never would have finished it. Because you know, look, mm. this is a, um, <laughs> it's 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 my whole life, right? Yeah. And and I needed the motivation. I certainly needed the structure. Uh, the goal at the end was to yeah. hold this book in my hands. You know, there there was just so many other pieces go. that fell into place. Yeah. And also, I'll also mention too. When I wrote that first draft, uh, I went away to a Trappist monastery in the woods. Uh, oh, wow. I lived with it I, I, uh, for more than a month. And I just I just lived through the story again. Mm. And then I finished it. It was it was twice as long as it was supposed to be. Oh, wow. uh, I sent it off to my editor and I thought, oh, good. Now I'm done. I told my story. Mm, no, mm. <laughs> that's we had, we had just started. We had, <laughs> we had four, at least fourteen cover to cover edits of the whole book, wow. and that's actually the part of the process. It was the worst. It was the most grueling part of the process. Mm -hmm. um, but that was the part that I'm most grateful for mm -hmm. because I got to realize that. I, as, Anne, as the writer Anne Lamott has fam famously said, you own everything that has happened to you. Mm. Uh, and that's when I really got to realize that, that all this stuff is my story. And other mm. people, it, where I crossed with other people or where they intersected with my story, that part of it is there, sure. But my side of it is my story. And I'm the one that gets to tell it. That's and awesome. as long as you're being honest and authentic and you're, and you're doing right by the story, you get to put it together however you want, however makes sense for you. Uh, so I think it was in the editing, the realization, oh, I can do that. I can edit my story. Um, that was uh, profound for me because I mm -hmm. got to make it make sense.
That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. And I, and I love the authenticity in all of this too, man. So uh, I'm really enjoying this episode. So let me let me ask then, what is it that you really want to be uh, taken from every reader who's, who's reading your book? What is it the most that you want for them to understand for for from your story and also to understand for their personal life as well? You know, I, th- I think the point of the book, likewise, the point of all the public speaking that I've ever done, mm-hmm. uh, the podcast that I do, all the storytelling that I do, is to show people that uh, the mentally ill, in air quotes, uh, are not some different, separate species from right. the rest that's of right. us, that's right. right? That uh, That's also not to collapse the struggle either. It's not like, oh, everybody has struggles, you know, everybody's, mm. everybody's struggles are equal. No, they're not. Mm. Some people struggle a lot more than other people. That's, it's that's not, the, you know, it's not the suffering Olympics uh, that some people have it worse <laughs> than others. Respect. But also, you know, people who have depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, personality disorder, suicidal Mm, people, mm -hmm. they're not somehow different. They don't have a different brain than you. You know, they're not different people. So the way that I tell my stories and the way that I frame it is that, look, this can happen to anybody. You Mm. put the right social circumstances in place, the right risk factors in place. And this can happen to anybody. Um, so that's, I think, what I, I hope people take from it um, on on both sides of the equation. The struggle can happen to anybody, but I really firmly believe, and it looks different for everybody, sure, but I firmly believe that the recovery side can happen for anybody too. The problem is that so many people, too many people, haven't found yet the combination of factors that works right for them, uh, and they don't have the right supports in their life to guide them through it. So that's where I—that's what I hope my story can do—is to show people that that if I can do it, anybody can. Anybody can. Like I'm no—I'm no expert at this. I'm no genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just figuring it out as I go, uh, and you can too. When, when you when you made that statement about the fact that we don't have certain supports or or the right formula. What are some of these supports that people need to see or like, for instance, um, you know, because I don't deal with any chronic mental health illnesses, but I, I know people who do mm-hmm. and I always try to find a way to to be there. Sometimes I, I, I don't always understand what I need to do. And so what are some steps or some advice that you would even say, hey, this is these are some good things that you can be in order for you to support someone going through this? Yeah, you know, being non-judgmental, I think, is 100%. key. And it's, it's I think, underrated because some people think that just sitting there, even not saying anything, silence is incredibly powerful if it's, a, mm. if it's an observed, you know, engaged silence. Uh, but you don't have to give them any solutions. You don't have to fix mm. all their problems for them. They want to know that we want to know that somebody has our back. That somebody is in our corner, that they they support us uh, no matter what decision we make, the right one or the wrong one, mm. and that they're not going to leave, that they're still going to be there, right? That's I think that's what people need to know, that they have a teammate. Uh, and, and you don't have to have all the answers, but if you're willing to help them navigate uh, the system or their recovery or their journey, however they need... Uh, then that's often more powerful. So I think that's what people can do is to let people know 
that you're in their corner and to offer them practical uh, supports uh, that they might that they might need, whether it's uh, finding access to to a healthcare provider uh, or or something else. There are many routes to recovery. I'm I'm never one to judge anybody's uh, route. If yoga works for you, great. If running or travel or medication or therapy or whatever, I don't care how you recover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it turns out that the that the science. Uh, is pretty indiscriminate as well. There are many, many, many different routes to recovery. And uh, I suggest that people try and try and try, and you will never run out of options. Can I, I want to ask this question too. Um, When it comes to recovery, uh, what, what groups of individuals have you seen have had some of the hardest routes towards recovery because of possible like ideologies Mm. um you know thought processes uh uh, religion x y and z like what what do you think is some of the barriers to people actually truly being able to recover Uh, i think one of the primary ones that i've seen is a sort of uh passive stand back approach that uh people who objectify and stigmatize themselves uh, and say, you know, my, I, I was born, I was just born this way. I just had bad genetics. Uh, mm. I was the, the unlucky one. Um, everybody else is, is part of my problem. That might be true. Everybody else really probably is part of your problem. Yeah, yeah, they probably enough. are contributing to your struggle. Um, but that at the end of the day, what are you going to do about it becomes mm. the next question, right? So people who become um, subservient to their illness. Uh, they think that their illness controls them. They think that their brain uh, controls them, and which of course, you know, neurologically it might, but we also have this other part of our brain that allows us free will and to make choices and to do hard things. Yeah. That's the part that we need to engage more. So the people who have the hardest outcomes, I think, or the hardest time are the people that don't realize how powerful they are. Mm. They, 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 don't have to live the way that they're living. They just haven't quite yet figured out uh, the the route out. Um, but but those are the people. If if we can inspire people uh, to realize that they do and need to have an active role in their recovery, uh, mm. they're the ones that will do much better. Uh, I really like that response. It, it puts power back into your hands. I mean, it makes you. And this also isn't. I want to be clear too. This isn't just yeah. mo- motivational you know, fluff Yeah. Uh, that I mean, even if you talk to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, if you can give medication to somebody, sure. But mm-hmm. if they actually are engaged in their treatment and they believe that the medication is going to work and they participate in other aspects of the treatment, those people are going to do much better than somebody who's just in a hospital waiting for the medication to work, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or likewise with therapy. If you're engaged in the process and you want it to work, then it's going to work better than if you're not, and certainly better than if you're resisting the process of change too. That what you're saying right there is a universal truth. Uh, I, I believe also in so many other factors of recovery. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking even of, of the alcoholic or the sexaholic, whatever the case may be. If uh, and whatever issues that are going on in our world, right? Ultimately, if we want to see that change, you know, if we're, and we're working with that change then we're going to see it happen exponentially but if we're working against it we're always doubting or we or we just hope it just comes to us yeah man we're not we're not going to be able to see anything truly happen uh for for our growth so yeah yeah, i love i love that that truth that you just said right there because that that's universal to to any situation 
as well that we can find ourselves in. Or likewise, if people who, uh, you know, whether this is a a mindset or, or just how some people approach it, um, people who set their sights too far or set the goal too big, um, then of course they're going to be let down. You know, if they're really struggling Mm. to get out of bed right now because they're so depressed and they think that they're going to run the marathon the next day, then Mm -hmm. yeah, you're setting yourself up to fail. Uh, So instead, if you're able to identify it, maybe, maybe I can't run the marathon yet, but maybe at least I can roll out of bed. Maybe at least I can get a shower Mm. and then celebrating those small successes. You have to meet yourself where you are and don't compare your progress, your recovery with anybody else, because you don't know the work that it took for that other person to get to where they mm-hmm. are. Uh, so instead meeting yourself where you are and taking as small of steps forward as you need, but mm-hmm. never stop always take some step forward. Love that, man. Love that. It, when, when it comes to the concept of impact, you know, cause our, our, our focus here too on, on the podcast is impact in the world in such a grand way or a smaller way. Um, clearly you have been impacting uh, many people, not only uh, through your experience, but because of your your willingness to share, uh, your willingness to go out of your way, out of your comfort zone in order to tell people your story and, and to help people and guide them through that. Now writing a book, the so-called normal, you're giving people hands-on, um, evidence-based, life-based uh, work for them to be able to see how they can come through with this as well. But all through all of that, what when it comes to that concept of impact, what do you want to be known as um, when it comes to this individual who has at, impacted the world in this way? What, what would it be that you would love to, to know that you have impacted the world in this specific aspect? Hmm. That's a really great question. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking or I spend less time now, I think than I used to thinking about what my impact would be or what my Mm. legacy would be or whatever. But, you know, I think that if I'm able to create a body of work uh, that tracks my own life, my own journey, as messy as it has been and probably will be. Mm -hmm. And if somebody else relates to that, in some way, yeah. and they see themselves in that journey, uh, and they're not going to see themselves in the whole journey, sure. But if they see themselves in part of it, and they can take something from that part to help themselves, mm-hmm. then I'll have seen myself as a success, and it'll and it already has been all worth it. It's not like I'm even looking forward yeah, to yeah. someday this will all be worth it. <laughs> I get reminded every day because I have an active gratitude practice. I'm reminded mm. every day that it's already worth it. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel like wonderful. I've already won and that's a yeah. really beautiful place to get to in your life. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. I, I, I love the way that you think, I must say, Mark, the way that you think, the way that you, um, choose to move around this world. Uh, and I know that came with a lot of time. I know that came with a lot of, uh, work within yourself and growth. Um, but from what I'm seeing, from what I'm hearing, I think that it's what you're doing so far in society and what you will continue to do is going to be astronomical in in helping others to truly understand themselves and to be able to grow no matter what situation that they find themselves in. So I just really want to say thank you for for um, having that space to to be you, to be comfortable in sharing your story Um, and to add a little bit to that, um, you know, for myself. I remember it took me a long time to even tell someone the first time I was ever suicidal. Uh, and, and it was so, 
like I was so jittery. I was so shaky. I, I, I didn't know what to say. I thought that someone would look at me differently. Even to this day, I don't necessarily share it so often because like, um, as a youth pastor, uh, sometimes, you know, in the Christian community is you, you say you, you had a suicidal thought. So people, especially, you know, older, older folks might look at you a completely different way. And so, um, just being able to see your authenticity and your comfortable comfortability to share, uh, is also, I just want you to know, it's also empowering me to be able to share a little bit more and to, to just be, be okay with the fact that that was a part of my story. And, and this is, and, and I was able to move forward with that as well. So yeah, man, just really, really thank you for, for this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and thank you for sharing that too. I think it's so important. And look, I'm, I'm the first one to tell people you only, you know, if it's right to share your story or not, Mm. but what I can tell you just from my own experience is that you'll never be comfortable sharing it. If you're waiting to be comfortable (laughs) to share your story, (laughs) it's just not going to happen. I mean, now it just kind of spills out of me, but I still get nervous sometimes, you know, Mm. and I, and I think that's normal, but you do change your relationship with your story uh, Mm. with practice. And you realize that if somebody else isn't comfortable with my story, then that's their problem, not mine. So, you know, that's a good place to get Uh, to as well. I I like that. That's great, man. Anything you want to leave us with uh, before you, before you go, uh, before we close out this episode, and then want to also be able to share any source of, um, websites, uh, social media handles and everything of the sort as well afterwards. But anything you want to leave us with before we we go on this in this episode? Well, yeah, I hope that people realize, especially when they're in the darkest point uh, of their lives or the darkest points, because they're rarely only one, uh, mm-hmm. that what you're what you see in that moment, or I should say what you can't see uh, in that moment, uh, shouldn't determine what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You know, when I was mm-hmm. su- uh, suicidal, I was completely collapsed into that place and that's all I could understand and see. So just remind yourself, if nothing else, uh, that this too shall pass. Every moment Mm. passes, bad and good. So hold the bad things lightly and celebrate and amplify the good things as much as you can. I love that. I I, I might use that as our our main voice note because that was... That was beautifully well said, man. Thank you so much. Anywhere we could find you, uh, where could we get your book? Uh, where can we find you? I know you also have a podcast. What podcast is that as well? Sure. Well, I'm everywhere. I, I host the Living Well podcast for LifeWorks. I also have my so-called normal podcast as well. I haven't done any new episodes of that in a while, but there's a lot of them there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is so-called Normal, a memoir of family depression and resilience. Uh, that's available everywhere across Canada on Amazon, at Indigo, and most uh, small bookstores as well. Awesome. Um, and I'm on most social media platforms at Mark Hennick. Awesome. We're definitely going to advertise your book through Matt Casters as well. Um, and we want to just be able to showcase what you do and all the impact that you're doing in this world. So Mark, thank you so much once again for coming on to Matt Casters podcast, uh, sharing, highlighting your story, sharing who you are as an individual and how you're continuously changing and impacting the world around us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning into today's episode of Madcasters with your host, Brian St. Louis. Please remember, do what you are called to bring into this world. Someone's life depends on your willingness to obey your calling. You are special and you have something positive to bring 
to this world that no one else can. Every Thursday at 5 a.m. Eastern Time, a new episode will be ready for you to listen and grow from. Be sure to subscribe to Madcasters on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Instagram at Madcasters. Support the podcast through patreon.com backslash Madcasters because together we can make the difference in order to change the world.